Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Donald Trump back from uh, Vietnam now. Uh, This is just so tragically incompetent. So we'll talk about that as we continue through the program today. But Congressman Mark Pocan, the co-chair, along with Pramila Jayapal of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is on the line with us. His website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And he represents Wisconsin's 2nd District. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Congressman, I'm curious. I mean, there's so much going on in Congress. What are, in your opinion, the things that are really important that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, this was a really busy week. You know, on Tuesday we passed a measure to try to override the emergency declaration by the president, the fake emergency declaration. We had the Michael Cohen hearing, which I think everyone around the country was watching. But in middle of all that, the new Medicare for All bill was introduced with 107 co-sponsors, the best, most comprehensive Medicare for All bill ever introduced into Congress, with a large number of different groups already supporting it on its introduction. And then we just passed two strong gun violence prevention measures. It just shows, again, what November elections meant. We're moving. We're doing things in the right direction. We're doing checks and balances on the Trump administration. We're putting progressive policy forward, and we're passing legislation on the floor of Congress. That's extraordinary. And your thoughts on the Cohen hearings, which I thought were just history-making. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, Michael... Cohen is definitely not a choir boy, right? We all know that. But this is who Donald Trump surrounds himself with, right? People who have kind of sketchy professional backgrounds. And He's no- basically a mob lawyer, isn't he? I mean, that's how he came across. He even talks like one, you know? Like I'm a wise guy. <laughs> and yet, you know, all these people around him have been indicted, and he's the one who told us he brought in the very best people. I mean, because, again, the very best people don't work for a guy like Donald Trump in business or in the White House. And I think it was very telling and nothing surprising in what he said. I mean, some of the things I've heard leadership say they have heard Donald Trump say or how he acts were totally represented by what Michael Cohen said. So it just kind of reinforced that I think he gave honest testimony, you know, maybe in a little bit of a gangster style. But, you know, it sounds like Donald Trump ran his businesses a little bit like a gangster. So but I thought it was telling for the American people to see all that. Yeah, it really is, and it's really extraordinary. So let's pick up some phone calls here. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania, you're on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Hello, Tom, and hello, Congressman Pocan. Boy, what a crazy week. You have uh, this Cohen testimony. You have 
the Trump talks in Hanoi with Kim Jong-un. You have this uh, potential spark of World War III with India and Pakistan, and which isn't even getting any media coverage at all in corporate media. And that's kind of what I'm uh, calling about. Congressman Pocan, there's a paradox with nuclear weapons. On the one hand, we haven't had a world war since nuclear weapons were invented. And in a lot of ways, if we didn't have nuclear weapons, I predict we would have seen a third world war, which probably would have killed billions of people by this point. Is there any way we can push for a global UN treaty that will dramatically reduce nuclear weapons, these stockpiles of nuclear weapons around the world? And I'm not just talking about India or Pakistan or North Korea or anything like that. Because I generally think that if they didn't have nuclear weapons, we'd be seeing bloodbaths all around. But a gradual reduction, including in the United States and Russia, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with the idea that it's nuclear weapons is right. We haven't had some of the negative interactions around the world. But I do totally agree that whatever we can do to try to take up some of that supply that's out there would put us in a better place place and unfortunately the president just signed off of an old treaty and you know i personally think you know when you look at the military industrial complex this is one great profit center that's out there this is an area maybe donald trump has figured out how to make a nickel but you know i worry about the direction of this administration and some of the people he's bringing back into foreign policy uh, and what that means for the planet so i would love to see a much more aggressive stance getting rid of nuclear weapons across the globe I think uh, we, we should be doing that, but uh, I think the direction under this administration has been just the opposite. Steve in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, hi, Mark. Thanks again for helping us out with information going on in, uh, in the White House. I have a question that I asked you about last year, and I never heard of any recent information concerning the right-to-work laws that they were going to, well, they were similar to right-to-work laws, where they're going to try to make them uh, efficient in every state. Has that gone through? There were some, I think, measures talked about by the Department of Labor. Uh, nothing is progress to that point. And I believe there's a piece of legislation that definitely will never pass, especially with Democrats in control in the House, that would have gone more to a right-to-work state. I'm forgetting the person who introduced it to offhand. I just can't think of that. But the good news is, again, consequences of November's elections is no way will anything legislatively ever move forward through the House of Representatives that would uh, be advancing right-to-work. Uh, in fact, the bill that uh, Bernie Sanders and I have around um, uh, collective bargaining and other union issues includes a repeal of the state laws around right to work because, you know, Wisconsin was one of the last, most recent to do that, and it had a lot of negative effects on people's wages. And even the contractors didn't want it. In fact, the contractor coalition uh, was over 400 contractors that said, we don't want this. It wasn't the private sector that asked for it. It was Scott Walker in one of his final days of trying to prove he's a relevant Republican doing that. I don't think you'll see it happen out of Congress. Will the White House try something? It's a little harder because we can still try to do some roadblocks. I think there could be potential lawsuits depending how they try to do it. But, you know, I would argue what we need to do right now, especially with the presidential election coming up, is talk about ways to make it so that workers are more empowered, have more of a voice in their workplace, and how to really lift people's wages and benefits by getting back to uh, things like collective bargaining rights and unionization. I'm writing a book right now on voting rights in the United States and the history of voting, and was uh, going through the 1956 election, the Eisenhower election, re-election, 
And one of the arguments that he was making for his reelection, uh, one of the legislative calls for action that he was calling for, was a significant rewrite of Taft-Hartley. He said it was too it was too aggressive or draconian. I forget the word he used, but that you know basically it was damaging unions in the states that had gone right to work, and he wanted to dial that back. Of course, it never happened. But I mean, this is a Republican president, right? And you know, Democrats and union leaders. You know, I've had this conversation with the heads of half a dozen major unions. You know, we're all saying you know we should have repealed Taft-Hartley. It was passed over Truman's veto. Is there any effort to actually repeal Taft-Hartley or to significantly rewrite it, perhaps even along the lines that Eisenhower was talking about? No, not offhand. You know, I think when it comes to labor law, most of our focus has been trying to make sure there's been so much slippage since the Obama administration on uh, labor law and labor rules. Unfortunately, in my opinion, Barack Obama waited till the last couple of years to do a lot of really good, strong labor law changes via the rules process through the agency make it better for workers. But because of the way it happened so late, Donald Trump was able to overturn some of those, so we weren't able to move forward on overtime pay and some other issues that really needed it. So we've really been focused a lot on around the agency and now with the secretary under a lot of controversy. I'm not sure if they'll be able to move to effectively forward on negative legislation. That's right. Alex Azar is the labor secretary. He's the guy who who let Jeffrey Epstein off on the whole child exploitation thing, right? Yeah, and the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which I, Paul, and I have asked for him to resign. Yeah, great. Good. Good, good on you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Congressman Pocan's website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Veronica in Chapel, Nebraska. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thank you both for all you do. How does Medicare for All affect workmen's comp? I don't know offhand. What are you asking? Well, I do know that when I got past workmen's comp from 9385 in Oregon, that I had to go on SSD and SSI. So Social Security is picking up for workman's comp. Hmm. Congressman, wouldn't Medicare for all render workman's comp unnecessary? Well, I I mean, that's the idea, right? You'd have Medicare as the basis of health care for everyone across the country, but you'd have expanded Medicare. I mean, what we've done in this bill, for example, is included things like vision and dental and mental health. We've included long-term care in here. So actually, it's even more inclusive than the current Medicare package. But I would assume that, yeah, that, that Medicare would be taking care of much of what you might be raising as a concern that you know, wouldn't be there otherwise. Yeah. Barbara in Camden, South Carolina. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Hi. Tom, I love your show. Um, for the Medicare for All, do you actually think that since the Senate is majority is Republican. Do you actually think anything will get done on that? I hate to be Debbie Downer, but it just seemed like, really, the Congress can't get anything done because of the Senate. Barbara, I don't disagree. There are many things we're not going to be able to get to the Senate or the White House. But in about a year and a half, we're going to have an election where we can flip the Senate and the White House. So I think there's a reason why all the major 2020 presidential candidates are talking about Medicare for All and why we've put a bill with a lot of organizational support that was never there before 
and why we're laying out the meat on the bones so that we are in a position to make this real if we are successful in 2020. But do I expect Mitch McConnell to take this up in the Senate? No. But right now I've got some work to do with even some of my Democrats on this. So we're doing polling and focus groups. We're building organizational support. We're building support among the presidential candidates. So this will be a reality someday, but I don't anticipate Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump to be signing this into law. And really, this is how we got, you know, women's suffrage, in addition to massive, more than a century long, you know, activism, but repeated legislative attempts. It's how we got Social Security. It's how we got the eight hour workday. It's how we got the 40 hour week. It's how we got so many things is, you know, they got shot down time after time after time. And we just kept coming back, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was a state legislator, I had a bill compassionate care for rape victims, to make sure that every hospital in the state of Wisconsin offered information about and access to emergency contraception for someone who's been raped so that they wouldn't have a child. And 40% of the hospitals weren't offering it. It took me four sessions. I finally got it done with a Republican majority, but it took a lot of years. But that's how you get things like this done. That's right. Just keep pushing. But eventually, we'll get that rock to the top of the hill yeah. and over. <laughs> Congressman Mark Pocan with us. We'll be right back. My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. Bill in St. Paul, Minnesota, listening on AM 950. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good day, everyone. Uh, I love your show. Uh, I'm pro-union, but uh, to back up a little bit to the point I'm trying to make, which is an observation, many years ago there was this uh, communist fear tactic rubbish about a domino theory, you know, one, one country falls and the rest are going to go. But the re real domino effect based on a domino theory is... When Reagan busted the air traffic controllers and opened the floodgates for all sorts of union busting, and, and that's why why uh, union membership is way down today. There's your real domino theory, and I'll take uh, your return observation off the air. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, Bill. I yeah, I'm with you. I you know when we had the highest rates of unionization. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, we had the least amount of income discrepancy, and people had some of the highest real wages in the workplace, and now we're down so much. But there was an organized effort, and no question, it was during the Reagan era by that air traffic controller situation and others that they started their work to dismantle unions. And even in Wisconsin, when we had our uprising, which was supposedly over a small amount of discrepancy in the budget, Skywalker used that as justification to bust the union. So this has been a very organized political effort by conservatives and Republicans to take away the power from working people for a very, very long time. 
And I would argue any 2020 candidate that's going to get any love from me uh, is going to have to have a really strong stance when it comes to working people because, to me, the most core fundamental, most people don't live and breathe politics like Tom, all of your listeners, but most people are just worried about getting by for their family. Can they afford their mortgage or rent? Do they have health insurance? Uh, can they take a family vacation? Do they maybe have that little luxury of a camper, a snowmobile, a boat, something? That's the middle-class existence, and you get that when you have stronger uh, unions in this country, and that helps everyone when lifting wages. So I think it's a real important point you brought up, Bill. Inez in Villarica, Georgia. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Love your show. Congressman, with Michael Cohen's testimony, which I listened to, are we any closer to impeaching Trump and Pence? Great question. I'm going to take the Trump part, not the Pence part. How's that? Because I think Pence is another issue. But every day that we're closer to having more hearings that bring out more information, every day we're closer to the Mueller report coming out, which for some people is going to be a necessary step to have, we're getting closer to, I think, finding out what exactly this president and his administration is really about. Many of us have voted for impeachment on the floor already because we think there are plenty of impeachable offenses that are out there. But don't forget, we're going to need Republican votes as well to actually pass impeachment. So we need to build the case and build the case and build the case. And there is also a certain a small amount that the Mueller report looked at, and there's a whole lot else that we're now having hearings about, getting more information about. So I think it was a step forward. We're going to keep getting information about this White House. But again, like I said, I was not surprised by almost anything I heard him say because we've heard it before, just hearing it that upfront and close and personal from one of the people that he's hired, I think was really powerful and hopefully helps us in moving a more just approach towards uh, dealing with this White House forward. Patsy, listening to KPFK in Woodland Hills, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi. Well, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is about Medicare for All. And the biggest obstacle, I think, when I'm talking to people about why it's necessary and why we need to do it is that they don't understand how it's going to be paid for. And I keep hearing from the Democratic Party about why we need it and that they're going to support it and blah, blah, blah. But what I don't hear is a basic, like, layperson's 30-second kind of elevator pitch about how it's going to be paid for. So I'm wondering how, how the Democratic Party is going to approach that or is approaching that. Yeah, Patsy, that, that is an awesome question. And one of the major reasons why we have a bill right now introduced is so we can get a CBO score, right, which is the official kind of government scoring of what they're estimating a cost to be. I think Tom and I could give you a lot of reasons why we think this is going to lower the cost of health care by getting rid of profits and overhead and administrative costs and other things that are associated with health care right now, how it's a savings to employers, and that will help stimulate the economy because money will go to other aspects of business growth. But we need to see those numbers to be able to have that. I would also argue, as the Progressive Caucus has, you know, we think the military budget is bloated. There could be reductions there. There's a high-speed financial transaction fee that would bring in a trillion dollars a year, although, Tom, this is new news. They're raising the rate on that this year. Peter DeFazio, who's got the bill, used to be Keith Ellison's, and I think it's going to raise $3 trillion a year now in revenue and something the European Union already does. There are plenty of ways to do it that are not going to affect middle-class taxpayers one bit at all. You don't need to, and I would argue there's cost savings. So you'll have more of that information very, very soon, Patsy. That's why we interested in And that stat tax on, tra- on, ta- on uh, stock trades is something we had in the United States from the 1930, I think 1935 to 1964, too, didn't we? 
Yeah, and this is the high-speed one. So this is really just affecting those people buying multiple buys per second and things. So right. It has it in place. It's just computerized um, gambling. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. amazing. We'll be back. For the Tom Harmon University Book Club today, we're reading from a book written by my old friend, Dennis Weaver. He has passed away. I wrote the foreword of this book, just FYI. It's called All the World's a Stage, and it's Dennis's autobiography. Dennis Weaver, Chester and Gunsmoke, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's talking about early in the Depression. This is from page uh, 17, just kind of telling his early life. Early in the Depression, it became clear. He's talking about the 1930s, when he was a young boy. Early in the Depression, it became clear that people had to come together and support each other, or many would just not survive. Not being cooperative and neighborly was not an option. If our neighbors were in trouble, we would not think twice about helping them. We just did it. I remember a family named Hardy bought the 10 acres next to our farm. There was nothing on that land except woods. The men in the surrounding area got together on weekends to cut down the trees and made logs to build a house, a real log raising. Within six or seven weekends, they built a log home for the Hardy family to live in and a shed for their cows. Children had lots of fun. We played games and jumped from stump to stump like leaping frogs while the men sawed logs and hammered nails. Ladies brought covered dishes of food like potato salad, baked beans, and jello, and we had a picnic at lunchtime. It was a community thing, a gathering of friends, and to this day, I still carry the feeling with me. In those times and moments, despite the Depression, we thought we had the best of life, and in a way, we really did. Life was simpler. We knew how good it felt to be neighborly, to share our lives with each other. The national economy was shredded due to the crash of 1929, but in our area, including parts of Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, the problem was exacerbated by what was known as the Great Dust Bowl. Continuing droughts had dried up the earth, and the fierce winds picked up the defenseless soil and made huge clouds of thick, swirling dust. Visibility often shrunk to a few yards. Most skilled and determined farmers were humbled before its wrath. The nutritious topsoil was all blown away and agriculture came to a screeching halt. At the time, I didn't understand it, but it's crystal clear to me now that our economy and our environment are interdependent. When the environment at that time was destroyed and the farmers could no longer farm, they weren't the only ones who suffered. The economic disaster for the farmers spread like a raging virus to carpenters, plumbers, shop owners, and even bankers. Okies by the thousand piled whatever possessions they could salvage into cars, trucks, any jalopy that would run and headed for California, which Dust Bowl victims considered to be the land of milk and honey. Perhaps the only one who profited from the Dust Bowl was John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. Because of the Dust Bowl, our farm was not financially successful. It certainly helped to feed the family, but the extra income my folks had hoped it would generate did not materialize. Mom, always trying to find a way out, heard from neighbors who had fled the Dust Bowl in our devastated economy earlier that the strawberry picking was good in Oregon. There was money to be made just for the picking. So we gave up on the farm and moved back to my birthplace in Joplin, 619 Brownell, to get ready for the trek west. Furthest west I'd ever been was Blackwell, Oklahoma. Would I see a real live cowboy? I wondered. What would Oregon be like? I might even see the Pacific Ocean. Our budget for the trip was minimal at best. Like the pioneers across the Great Plains 100 years earlier, we were obliged to carry our own supplies because motels and restaurants were out of the question. Unlike those earlier settlers, the horses that carried us were not hitched to a wagon, but were under the hood of a 1928 DeSoto. Our plan was simple. Mom, Howard, Mary Ann, two years old by this time, Jerry, Denzel, Bell, and I would go to Oregon and pick strawberries and do what other jobs we could get. 
we would save our earnings and come back to Joplin in time for Howard and me to go back to school. Dad would stay behind, keep his job at the Empire District, and serve as a safety net for us. In case we broke down or got stranded, he could bail us out. Denzel was a carpenter by trade. He put his skills to good use. He built a cupboard on the back of old Betsy, our DeSoto, where we could store an ample supply of canned goods and food staples. By releasing a fastener, the backside of the cupboard opened up and a leg swung down to support it. And lo and behold, we had a table on which to prepare the food and off of which we could eat. We jammed the storeroom with supplies, gave old Betsy a final mechanical check, said our farewells, and headed west for the wild blue yonder. Although she never hinted at it, I'm sure Mom must have had a few qualms and trepidations. For me, it was just the beginning of what I imagined to be a great adventure. We started out for Oregon in the late spring of 1934. In those days, there were no four-lane interstates, just two-lane roads that were often in need of repair and full of detours. Our top speed was 40 miles an hour, so driving to Oregon was no walk in the park. Not long after crossing into Colorado from Kansas, we could see on the horizon what looked like a triangular cloud. It was strange because, like the other clouds, moved, this one didn't budge. We used it as a guiding star for more than two hours before we realized it wasn't a cloud at all. It was the snow-capped top of Pike's Peak. As we drove deeper and deeper into the Rocky Mountains, I was moved more and more by their sheer beauty and breathtaking grandeur. It was awesome. I loved the majestic granite mountains, the tall pines, the quaking aspens, crisp, dry air. It was all very magical to me. I guess I'm back in Colorado today because I was so impressed with it as a child. I was not only impressed by the beauty, but by what it had to offer. This was the first time I'd ever seen a real live working cowboy. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a real deer. We were driving over Wolf Creek Pass at dusk, coming around a bend, and there, right in front of us, was this wild deer running down the road in and out of the shadows. The book All the World's a Stage, Dennis Weaver's autobiography, the foreword by Tom Hartman. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Laura in Hazel Park, Michigan. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman Pocan. I've been sitting there for a minute, and you answered a lot of the questions, but I think that the one thing I was concerned with was right now we have a flood of votes going through Congress. It's just a floodgate. We know that it basically lays out the vision for what you have for the country and in hopes that we can, in the future, get these passed. The question I have is how many of these bills will go through as easily once we have control over the Senate and the White House when they're no longer a safe vote. 
Great question, Laura, and I'm glad you're witnessing what we're trying to do, right, is we're trying to put a lot of different things out there that we promised we ran on in November, we're putting out there. While a cynical part of me could say uh, one could argue it would be more difficult to get some of these things through if you had Democrats at all levels, the pragmatist in me says if I have people voting for it now, it's awful hard to not vote for it again in the future. So the more people we rack up the votes for on these issues, the easier it will be for us to get these done when you have a Democratic president and hopefully a Democratic Senate. So I'm a believer in what's happening right now. I think it's important to show what the differences are between the two parties to put these ideas out there. But I'm even more happy that every time I get someone on a recorded vote on something, they're not likely to change in the future. So the more votes that we do get, I think it's going to put us in a better position for 2020 to pass this type of legislation. Danny in Tell City, Indiana, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, Mr. Pocan, uh, I'd pay uh, $133.50 for a 20% supplement plan, and $135.50 for Part B Medicare. And I was wondering if the new Medicare law is going to be Medicare for uh, 100% as opposed to 80% that it is now. So I know that Pramila Jaipal is the lead author on it, but last night we were at an event together and she was talking about some aspects of it. And she said that there are no co-pays whatsoever with it, because the whole idea is you want to get healthy, right? We don't want people having to wait till they have money to get health care. So I think it is likely to be more comprehensive, because we are covering, don't forget, dental and vision and mental health, and we're covering long-term care, and we're covering more things. So I think you're going to find it to be far more inclusive. But I'm very familiar with what you're talking about now, where unfortunately people can't get the full coverage under the full plan. And if I can, Tom, just make a quick pitch also. Lloyd Doggett from Texas has got a bill to allow us to negotiate for prescription drug prices with the pharmaceutical companies. We have a majority of the Democrats in the House are on that bill now, and we are really as a caucus fighting for that bill as well to be put out there while we're talking about prescription drug prices this session. We think it's integral that we are dealing with prescription drugs for Medicare no different than we do with the veterans or for Medicaid, because there's huge cost savings. So that's another bill I think that's real important. And that one could very likely get a vote this session. And at the same time, there's this new group that has just uh, committed millions and millions of dollars. Here it is. It's called American Action Network. They're targeting 46 Republican House lawmakers and 11 Republican senators with millions of dollars worth of mail, print, and digital campaign ads that say, and I quote, government interference will limit seniors' choices in Medicare Part D. Liberal politicians are pushing harder than ever to bring government bureaucrats between seniors and their doctors with plans that would restrict access to medicines in the Medicare Part D program. We encourage seniors to call their members of Congress and tell them to keep fighting bureaucratic interference in Medicare Part D. In other words, don't let the government negotiate drug prices for Medicare Part D. Your rebuttal to that, and were you aware that this was happening? No, I wasn't aware of that, but we've seen plenty of other pushback here, Tom. We know that the industry has been trying to convince some lawmakers to look at an arbitration process that affects only a few drugs a year, but I don't think that's what the American people want. There's no reason for us not to treat Medicare the same as Medicaid and veterans, how we are able to negotiate for prices. You know, when this happened, I listened to Tammy Baldwin, who's my U.S. Senator, who's a strong progressive, told the story at the press conference of they remember that night when they were up late in the night when that vote happened that took away the ability to do this. And I think it was Billy Towson who then left Congress and took a million dollar a year job with the pharmaceutical. Two million a year. Two million a year. There you go. He I was on this program afterwards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this is the problem, right? This is an industry that is 
gross and disgusting in how they operate in this town. And I think they will do everything they can to stop it. The good news is we know the public is like 92% with us on this issue. And we are going to use all our efforts to make people feel pain if they're not with us. So we're going to push hard on this because this is a, it should be a no-brainer. David in Naugatuck, Connecticut. Am I saying that right, David? Watching us yes. on YouTube? You're on the air with Congressman Polk. Hi. Hi, Congressman Polk. Thank you for uh, serving in the Congress. I applaud you for uh, co-sponsoring the Medicare for All bill. When the bill was first passed in 1968, there was a provision to train doctors, and that provision was capped in 1997 by the Clinton administration. It's been capped at $10.1 billion. It's currently 30 million uninsured, or 50 million if you say, if you count underinsured. Are there any movements or provisions or thinking that AV spending for graduate education for doctors should be expanded? And also, we should have more lenient standards in more medical schools, as well as processes to import doctors. I mean, Dean Baker wrote in his book that, well, lawyers and doctors are hidden. The rest of us have to compete against outsourcing or, or insourcing of professionals. Thank you. So, David, I don't know if there's anything specifically in the bill on this. I know that there have been a number of measures, and we have people come by our office on a regular basis trying to expand the options to have more uh, people enter the medical profession and get the training because of the caps that you mentioned. I know in states like Wisconsin, where you have a lot of rural areas, we have a real sometimes uh, problem in getting physicians to go to some of those more rural areas. Otherwise, people have to drive hours to go see a doctor because of the economics of it all, and we would like to see that change. We know if you do your internship in a rural area, you're likely to stay in a rural area. So there are other measures like that. I can't tell you where necessarily they'll be in this Congress, but there certainly are other measures to try to address those issues. Steve in Genoa City, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman Pocan. Yeah, I live in the 1CD, so have pity on me. Um, And Citizens United stands in the face of campaign finance law, and all politicians need to collect vast sums of money because TV, radio, and internet paid political announcements are so expensive, as we, meaning all the people, own the airwaves and other frequencies, why don't we just pass a law that says no paid political announcement could cost more than 5 or $10 a piece? That way, nobody has to collect a lot of money. Yes, yeah, Steve, I don't know if that'd be constitutional to do that first. I think that could be a factor... You raise a a great point, and I think, uh, let me say two things about it. One, H.R. 1, which is the first bill introduced by the Democrats in Congress, is dealing with campaign finance, election, and ethics reform. Uh, We expect that will be on the floor in the next week or two. We marked it up, I believe, in a committee this week, or maybe it was the week before. But we're moving on this, and I couldn't agree with you more. Money is not free speech, and corporations are not people. That's my philosophy. The other thing I want to mention is, in addition to H.R. 1, going to be moving, and then we'll break it up into pieces and also send that to the Senate. The good news is, of the new class of Congress, 36 of the incoming freshmen took a pledge not to take corporate money. And, you know, previously I think there are five in Congress. Uh, Right now I think there were six maybe of us uh, who are incumbents joining those 36. Suddenly you're up to 42 members in the House of Representatives. That's 10% of Congress. When you have 10% of Congress not taking corporate money, you are going to start changing the face of how this place works. So uh, that's part of what inspired me. I had taken it, not that I got tremendous amounts because I vote the way I vote, but the good news is when I decided you know, not to take it, I did it because I was inspired by all these new folks. We have a chance to have a new movement and change 
how this city works. And what's so interesting, Tom, you'll really love this. I had a business lobbyist tell me that they were afraid they were going to start having a hard time getting meetings with members of Congress. So equating money and meetings, which is already basically illegal to do, but secondly, their solution was that we haven't raised the limits for a while, so we should double the pack limits, and that might be the answer to the problem. <coughs> Maverick in Edmonds, Washington, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Well, good morning slash afternoon to both of you. I've got a health care question. I got hit by a car on Christmas, and I'm still at home with no income recovering, and it's kind of a two-part thing. I think we need to have something to help people who are hurt pay their bills while they're convalescing. Also, my main question for Congressman is, wouldn't it be better or why don't we copy a functioning health care system from another country in the world? There's probably over 30 or maybe 40 to choose from, rather than kind of keep putting this patchwork together of the system that we have. Yeah, so uh, Maverick, great question. And I think that's what we're trying to do with Medicare for All, right? It is a system that already exists in this country that works really well, is a very popular program. So taking that, and really it's tweaks are what we're doing, but to an existing program is a great way to deliver healthcare, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. But you know, the bottom line is Canada is not a third world country. Most of Europe is not full of third world nations. I mean, this is something that works in democracies very well across the globe. Uh, you could take someone's plan and try to retrofit it to the United States, but I think this really is the best option. Since Medicare works so well for so many people already, this is, I think, the best way to try to see it entering the marketplace and the world, or at least our country, in the best and easiest way. And Robert Ball, the guy who actually wrote the legislation for Lyndon Johnson's on the record, is saying they fully expected within a decade it would have been extended to oh. everyone, and that's why they wrote it the way they did. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's another plug for it. Jerry in Grand Rapids listening on 102.5 FM. Uh, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I've got about a minute and a half to the break, Jerry. Quick one. Okay, thank you. Well, I just wanted to make a quick comment about unions and what has really been lost. You know, it's the classic unions that ran uh, apprenticeship programs, provided trade schools, and had a whole culture of manufacturing who understood what needed to be done. And we've lost so much. Simple things like lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, measure it twice, cut once. I know those things all sound kind of silly, but the technocrats don't have the ability to understand the intrinsic value of apprenticeship programs. And it's really difficult out there. And the problem with the unions now is they see the people who are in positions of power and authority don't care enough to spend the money, so they don't care enough to put forward the effort. Leadership has to come by example, and we're not seeing that. Thank you. Jerry, I would answer your question in this way. I agree with you. Registered apprenticeship programs are one of the best ways to provide training out there. That's exactly what most unions are doing who are providing some skill training and I've seen some amazing programs around the country. I visit a lot of these up in the Twin Cities in St. Paul. My union, the Painters and Allied Trades Union, because I'm a union member for three decades, has a program that's actually is registered as a community college in the training that they're providing, the higher skill training. About 30% of the people will get a four-year degree, but what about everyone else? I've been telling you how much I love Harry's products for years. I won't shave with anything else. Their close shave and smooth, comfortable glide is amazing. And Harry's delivers right to your door at a price your wallet will love, too. Harry's doesn't do gimmicks. You know, no vibrating heads, flex balls, or handles that look like spaceships. Who needs that stuff? Harry's gives you a simple, clean design with quality, durable blades, 
all at a fair price. Replacement cartridges are just $2 each, half the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. And Harry's Blades come with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love your shave or get a full refund. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners of the Tom Hartman program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Go to harrys.com today and use the code TOM to claim your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. That's harrys.com, code TOM. And in Zion, Illinois, listen to WCPT Dynasty. I just had a quick question for Mark Pocan. Um, what is your take on reparations in specific for African Americans? The reason I ask that because it seems like when the talk is coming up now, it's a lot of people like Senator Warren who are attaching other groups to it. Like when we paid out reparations for Japanese, Jewish, and, you know, there's no other groups attached to it. So I just want to know your stance. Yeah, Dynasty, thank you for that. And I grew up just across the state line from Zion, Illinois, and Kenosha. So I've been to Zion uh, many, many, many times growing up. I've heard Senator Warren mention her most recent proposal, and I have not seen any of it. There have not been a lot of concrete proposals in Congress previous in my first six years around reparations. So I would have to take a look at them. I just don't have a, a great answer for you right now, Dynasty, other than I'd like to, to see what people are proposing and hear their arguments, especially what Senator Warren put out there, because I think once a presidential candidate mentions an issue, it enters a new realm of discussion, and I think that means all of us will be talking about it. John in Cumberland, Maryland. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thanks, Tom. Hi, Congressman. I want to thank you for your service as a progressive in Congress. Really appreciate it. My question has to do with the Iran nuclear deal. And I believe that the greatest benefit from the deal was a safeguard against APAC, neocons, and Trump stampeding us into a bogus war with Iran based on lies that could have been challenged and deflated by the cadre of inspectors enforcing the treaty. I'm afraid Trump is going to get us into a war on the threshold of the election or before. Why aren't we hearing a word from Congress, the news, or even anti-war activists about this essential purpose of the treaty? So, John, maybe it's not getting out in mainstream media, but it's definitely talked about here. I mean, a lot of us were whipping that vote. We were very proud to get that put in place so that we could quit having this stupid, unending fight with Iran that some really want us to continue to have, right? The whole fight that we're doing in Yemen right now and the resolution that we passed in the House and the Senate trying to stop U.S. involvement is because they're still saying Iran is a proxy somehow. I mean, that. That fight has got us into a lot of other issues that we don't need to ever be in. So it's certainly talked about. I certainly think the reasons were not about Iran not complying, but more about trying to make Iran the boogeyman again, because fear works well for Republicans and conservatives, and especially for some who want to make Iran and that region the boogeyman again, because it works for uh, their narrative about international issues. But it is good talked about around here, and it was an issue that had a lot of passion from our Democratic leadership when we passed it as well. Ron, in Sophia, North Carolina, watching Free Speech TV, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Good day, gentlemen. I have a question about uh, possible future enemies like Russian and Chinese oligarchs buying up, you know, possible corporations buying up American land. Is that something we should be concerned about? Um, 
Ron, I'm going to chalk that up as I haven't thought about it a lot. I generally try not to think of, I guess, enemies, maybe, and maybe I should be. I have been concerned about the amount of debt, you know, that gets bought by countries like China and what that could mean if they decide all at once to take that money in. I think that does affect our diplomatic and trade and other relations. But I don't know offhand if I have a valid concern around oligarchs and that's going to cause a problem down the road. I would strongly encourage you to ask somebody in your staff to look into the percentage of both commercial and private real estate on the West Coast owned by Chinese investors especially, and on the East Coast, particularly luxury land owned by oligarchs from former Soviet states and Russia. It's consequential. Rosemary in Boise, Idaho, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, good morning, Congressman. I have a quick question. I'm on a fixed widow's income. I haven't been able to afford Medicare because, you know, I'm helping my daughter with several things. I've accrued three years of fines, so I can't afford to purchase it even more now. So what happens to those fines if Medicare does get accepted? Do you mean the Medicare for All proposal if it would pass? Yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't have to worry about that because everyone would have Medicare. There wouldn't be a lead-in period or anything else. It would be the law of the land. That would be the health care delivery system, if I'm understanding your question correctly. Andrew in Vancouver, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. My question is pretty simple. With 60% or a little bit more of the student loans headed into default and it being such an issue, why is there never a bill passed to lower the interest rate? Because most of them are a 6% or higher. You know, we could lower that to 1% and then subsequently give the people that have the loans the opportunity to pay it back instead of accruing four to five thousand dollars or more a year worth of interest which continues to raise the principal i'll take yeah, my and answer great, offline great question andrew i think you very likely will see uh, something pass out of the house this year about refinancing of student debt i was the first person in the country to introduce a bill on this in 2013 later elizabeth warren and senator gillibrand each introduced their own bills but this is something that you know when you're the second biggest amount of consumer debt that's out there you've got to be able to address also there are some people uh, actually uh, looking at uh, getting rid of higher education debt, and I think you may see some proposals around that as well. But I guarantee you'll have a vote around refinancing student debt in this Congress. Congressman, we got about 20 seconds. Thoughts about the upcoming week? Whew, I don't even know what our major bill is up, Tom. This was a week. It was We were very busy keeping going. But I know H.R. 1 will be coming up and equal pay or pay equity will be coming up in the next couple weeks. So those are a couple things to look for the Democrats. I look for Donald Trump is going to claim he's going to spin, although it looks like it was a giant colossal waste of time. Yeah, remarkable. Thanks again for being with us every week, Congressman. Thanks so much for being here today. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you. Again, appreciate it. Thank you. Breaking news, you know, Trump is coming back. Apparently, Kim got what he wanted. He got, you know, elevated onto the world stage as a major uh, leader, as somebody equal to the United States. As the leader, he is equal to the president of the United States, something no other president ever would have done or ever did with the Kim family in the 80, 90 years, however long it's been that they've been you know, running the North Korea as, a, as an iron-fisted dictatorship. Otto Warmbier's family has come out and said basically that they're outraged. In fact, here's the exact quote. We have been respectful during the summit process. Now we must speak out. Kim and his evil regime are responsible for the death of our son, Otto. 
Kim and his evil regime are responsible for unimaginable cruelty and inhumanity. No excuses or lavish praise can change that. Going right after the president, it appears that Trump has come back and ordered the Pentagon to stop joint defense exercises with South Korea. So that, you know, poor Kim won't feel nervous or intimidated. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? I'm well. Yeah. All right. I just wanted to more or less make a comment on uh, what I feel that happened. I feel that that hearing, that Michael Cohen hearing, actually literally ran Trump out of the country. And he ran, and this, and this, but this is what he did. He conned them uh, again. He's a kind man because he conned the American people with this, uh, uh, this, uh, uh, Jim Kun Yu, um, uh North Korea meeting, yep. which he had no, uh, he knew he wasn't going to do nothing. Well, I'm, I'm not sure, man. I think he, th- I think he thought he was so so brilliant, and Kim was such a pushover that he could just basically say, "Kim, uh, you know, we'd like to help you with a little economic development, and we'll dial back our our uh, sanctions if if you'll just get rid of your nukes." Uh, and, you know, as if yeah. Kim is going to do this, right? I mean, right. this is how delusional and how frankly stupid. Donald Trump is. And I, it pains me to call the president of the United States stupid. And, and to the best of my knowledge, we've never had a president who was stupid. We've had presidents who were villainous. We've had presidents who were genocidal. We've had presidents who were evil. We've had presidents who, you know, yeah. but stupid. Now we've got stupid in the White House. It's what, a tragedy, what, Maine. Yeah, well, yeah, but this, is, but this is the kind that I feel that he did uh, on the people, at least to get people talking about it so they wouldn't be fully on the Conan thing, that Cohen thing. Yeah, yeah. And so and in two or three days, it's less talked about and even forgotten by some, you know, his base, you know, which is all that I feel that this was all about. Yep. He used the world stage in order to counter what was happening uh, at that hearing. I think you're, I think you're right. Um, although what the Trumpets say is that the Democrats scheduled the, the Cohen hearings uh, on the day that Trump was going to be in North Korea to steal his thunder, and they're all upset about that. But regardless, uh, one of the things that I think is going to come out of the Cohen oh, hearings, okay. Maine, is yeah. that, is that uh, the news media, I, I have noticed in the last 48 hours that the news media has not been hanging on every word Trump says. Usually Trump tweets something, it becomes breaking news. Trump says something, it becomes breaking news. I haven't seen that. Now, I, it may be that Trump hasn't said anything or tweeted anything since he got home, but I'm pretty sure he has. And I think that that whole, we've got to do Trump no matter what, he's the president of the United States. Um, they now realize that we have a con man in the White House, a thug, a gangster, the head of a crime family uh, who inherited the crime family from his father. Now, I mean, literally an old world mobster. And I think that the media is, has figured that out and they are not going to be playing his game any longer. At least I hope that's the case. Maine, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. Uh, this report, by the way, brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. On the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas, joins us today from UN headquarters in New York. And you can hear his uh, two-minute-a-day news podcast, basically, wherever you get your podcast. Luke, it's been a uh, day and a half since uh, 36 hours, uh, more or less, since the talks with Kim broke down. What's going on here? It looks to me like this was just an absolute failure of preparation, that 
I don't think any president in my lifetime, literally, has walked into a high-profile public meeting with the head of state of another country with the goal, the explicit stated public goal of signing an agreement without having first had his people negotiate it. Yeah, and the it, the bit about preparation was underscored a few days ago. I forget exactly what it was, but I was on a press conference call with the White House where an official I can't name was talking about how Trump was dedicating himself, you know, 24 hours a day to being as prepared as he could be for this summit. And then he was watching lots and lots of Fox News and hoping that they would talk about Korea. (laughs) And and not 10 minutes later, I forget what he was talking about, but it was I mean, he was like ranting about basically the NFL or Bob Kraft or something. And it's just like, really now? So clearly, I think preparation is is an issue. It's kind of interesting. I, I would say. While I think your sort of takeaway here that preparation is at the heart of the problem is is a pretty, you know, popular sentiment here, there are, you know, experts are sort of identifying different things here that could have been at the roots. So I'll just go over a few of the main theories here. I mean, one that's coming from folks like 38 North, the think tank, is that, you know, we are seeing confirmation in their words that Trump is relying on the madman theory of negotiations, which was first used by Richard Nixon with respect to the Chinese, the sort of thinking there being that you aim to portray to your adversary or your negotiating partner here that you are so volatile that, you know, the president's emotions can't be constrained on an issue and that because of how volatile the the U.S. president's reaction could be, North Korea is going to basically beg for peace and that Trump was sort of giving off these impressions deliberately in advance that he was about to bargain away everything. And then he comes there and just sort of goes. Look, if I may, the the whole madman theory was a basically a Republican con job story put together to justify (laughs) Richard Nixon stretching the war over a political election in order to get elected as a wartime president. I mean, there was no actual strategy to that effect. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, you know, a lot of the people who are on conservative talk radio that I've been speaking to, are, you know, are pretty inclined to reach for this because it would sort of explain Trump's erratic tendencies. In Maybe he's just a madman. Like he's, a, he's a mad genius. Right, right. There's a, where's the difference between madman and mad genius? So anyways, that's one sort of theory. I mean, I guess one, some things I've observed is that I think it's pretty clear that the North Korean side underestimates our negotiating capabilities here, that they, you know, after so many months of us asking politely or whatever it is for an inventory of their nuclear facilities and their weapons that they never even engaged on that when it sort of seemed like the, as we're told the negotiations in hanoi were focusing in on this young beyond nuclear reactor and possibly steps the north korea could take to shut it down in order to get various sanctions relief when we evidently started pushing them for details about sort of how they would shut it down which parts of the facility they would be willing to give up. They apparently stonewalled and said, you know, we did, we haven't thought it through that much, which suggests that, you know, they might have thought, and this would be pretty concerning, that we just need to mention a facility like this, and that will be enough for the U.S. to start engaging with us. Now, it's you know, again, it's sort of problematic that they didn't prepare uh, on that front, and they probably know what it would look like to actually take this facility apart. But to me, that signals that they underestimated us and that, you know, they could sort of name drop this facility. I, I so think that that's an indication of something there. very different. Donald Trump is yeah. backing away right now. We just had the largest trade deficit in the history of the United States, and the year before yeah. was, was just about as bad. And Trump claims that he's going to reduce the trade deficit by his tariffs against China. China has backed him up to the wall, and Trump is now saying that, well, he actually postponed, you know, the increase in tariffs. And so I think that what Kim has seen is that Trump will back down 
if you pressure him, and he figured that the pressure of the glare of publicity, and the same thing with Mexico, you look at the new NAFTA, right? It's essentially just as, it's identical to the old NAFTA with a little cosmetic changes, that Trump actually isn't interested in the details of the deal. He just wants the photo opportunity. That's what Kim believed. And those are two examples of actually when that happened, where there's proof of that. And I think that's just a reasonable and rational thing for Kim to think. If you're in North Korea and you're thinking, you know, we were being threatened 18 months ago, whatever it was, with war and destruction, decapitation, as Trump would say, and we decided to get into a process, and all we have to do is hold one summit a year for maybe three years, and we've waited out Trump, and in the process undermined the international sanctions regime against us, gotten Russia and China to partner up, we're kind of in the end game now, and Trump's time managing this process will run out, and, and Kim will be the beneficiary of that. I think oh, not that, just Kim. Not unfair the, to say we might not get a third, fourth, certainly not a fifth summit at this point. The real friggin' disaster here, Luke, is that right now every dictator in the world who has the resources of Kim is trying to build a nuclear bomb. That's the crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And a couple of stories that I wanted to talk to you about as well. There's just, I mean, so much incredible news going on. William Barr's son-in-law. Just think about how bizarre this is. The son-in-law of the Attorney General of the United States it just landed a job advising Trump on legal issues. This is from Vanity Fair. The Barr family is intent on gaining the nation's trust in order to avoid thorny work situations. Barr's son-in-law, Tyler McGoy, M-C-G-A-U-H-E-Y, will be leaving his job in the Justice Department for a new gig that will provide even more opportunities for conflicts of interest, this time of the Russian variety. CNN reports that McGoy, the husband of Barr's youngest daughter, has been hired as an attorney in the White House Counsel's Office, where he'll, quote, advise the president, the executive office, and the White House staff on legal issues concerning the president and the presidency. This is nuts. Sort of a crazy alert, pigeon alert, not quite. Farmers in India are fighting tooth and nail the scourge of opium-addicted parrots. Seriously, the birds are becoming intoxicated. This is legally grown opium uh, in uh, Madhya Pradesh, 38,000 hectares of licensed poppy cultivation. Parrots are becoming intoxicated, crashing into trees and branches, being found laying dazed in nearby fields after taking the drug. After the effects wear off, they fly away, but uh, the farmers are freaking out. It's seriously cutting into their uh, productivity, the productivity of their poppy crops. And they're out there day and night trying to get rid of the parrots. And they say, one of them said, we have tried making loud sounds. We've tried using firecrackers. Nothing has helped. These birds are seriously addicted. Well, uh, and, and, and the Sackler family wasn't even involved. I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> mean, meanwhile, Interesting information out of CPAC. You know, the, the Conservative uh, Political Action Conference is going on right now in Washington, D.C. I have broadcast my show from there in years past, and we, we thought about doing it this year. We decided not to. I have a feeling CPAC is kind of going down in flames, but who knows? It's turned into uh, all Trump all the time. 
the last one I was at was uh, when Mitt Romney was running for president. They were running around with flipper, you know, dressed like dolphins and things like that because he was flip flopper. But if you want to know who the conservatives are afraid of in the coming presidential election, probably the most accurate metric of uh, the man or woman that Donald Trump is most afraid of facing in a general election. The way to find out would be to find out who is being attacked at CPAC over and over and over by speaker after speaker after speaker, particularly the people who are in tight with the Trump administration. And it's not even close. That person is Bernie Sanders. Virtually every speaker. This is from uh, The Guardian. Brandon Morris, wearing a MAGA cap, he says, uh, the favorite of the Democratic race is Bernie Sanders because the way he makes socialism sound. Most citizens don't know how the system works. Once I tell them, they say it'll fall apart. And uh, then another guy says, uh, I'm against socialism because I see it as a form of slavery. The rich will get richer, the poor will get poorer. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris talk about Medicare for all, and that will kill doctors' incentives to work hard. Look at Cuba. Wait a minute. I've been to Cuba. Their medical system works really well. They have lower infant mortality than the United States. They have fewer maternal deaths than in the United States. (laughs) It's just incredible. They are going after Elizabeth Warren, and they are going after Kamala Harris. Um, it, it appears that those are the, and, and Cory Booker occasionally, but right across the board, the one that they seem to be going against the most aggressively is Bernie. Finally, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington state, a good and decent guy. Louise and I, back years ago, back when Jay Inslee was in, in the House of Representatives, had dinner with him in uh, Seattle, and I was very impressed by him great guy. He has announced that he's running for president, and he said he's doing it entirely on climate change. I would have counseled him if he had asked to say, the Green New Deal will put our economy back together, and it will help with health. It'll get all those cancer-causing pollutants out of our environment, plus it'll save the world. But we'll see where he goes with this. I wish him the very best. He's a good guy. Thanks so much for being with us today and every day this week. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 